And I said, well, I want to give away bikes to kids. I think kids in low-income communities, they definitely aren't getting bikes. A bike is an expensive thing for a low-income family, and the kids outgrow it really fast. It, so that's how Wish for Wheels got born. I mean, it was all about giving brand new bikes and helmets to, to kids in one school. Hi, everyone. You've tuned in to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity in our communities. I'm John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your host on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. What are your earliest memories and emotions of riding a bike? For many of us, the words fun, freedom, friends, excitement, and exhilaration come forward. For the past 16 years, the Wish for Wheels nonprofit based in Denver, Colorado, has been connecting second graders in Title I schools in underserved communities across the country with the joy that a new bicycle brings. A few weeks ago, I had the honor of interviewing Brad Appel, the founder and executive director of this amazing initiative. In our conversation, we talk about how the simple gift of a bicycle can have such a profound and positive influence on children. We discuss how the program leverages corporate engagement and organizational teamwork in delivering the bikes, as well as the various adjustments necessitated by the current COVID-19 pandemic. But before we start rolling into this conversation, please allow me a brief moment to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous support of our donors and monthly patrons from our Patreon page. In fact, I just need to say, in this past week, we've received over $1,200 in donations. As a bootstrap nonprofit, please know that these funds are so truly appreciated as they help me to continue producing content that helps to guide and inspire the creation of safer, more inviting, all ages and abilities environments that promote a culture of activity. Thank you all so much for helping out in any way that you can. I really do appreciate whatever support you're able to provide, whether that's a direct contribution, helping spread the word about our movement, or perhaps connecting us to potential sponsors. And as a special thank you for your contributions, we have some pretty cool Active Towns logo items for y'all, including stickers, hats from Head Sweats, and microfiber net gators from Pandana USA. To learn more about how you can make a difference, please head over to ActiveTowns, that's plural, .org, and just click on the donate button at the top right corner of the page. For your convenience, I've included this link in the show notes. Thanks for allowing me this moment to share this good news, but now it's time to roll into our Wish for Wheels conversation with Brad Appel. Enjoy. Brad, it is so wonderful to connect with you. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be interviewed. Hey, uh, to get us started, I thought it'd be fun to talk a little bit about how we got connected, which is through a mutual friend of ours. Uh, he's a fellow podcaster. He's a colleague of mine in the urbanism and active mobility world. That's Andy Baino. How did you get connected with Andy? Yeah, Andy Baino. Actually, you know, Andy and I just met and I found him on the internet while I was starting this podcast, uh, my own podcast called Bike Ride Podcast. 
and I was looking for interesting stories and people to talk to. And I came across an article Andy had written and it was about, you know, biking and how it changes his, changed his life and how he uses it as a tool. And, and I really, I, I was drawn to that and he and I just started talking and then we had a, we had a great podcast interview and he's really like, a you know, a magnetic guy. He's really great to talk to, super fun. Like I, and he was, he was great to interview and hear about his bike, how bike is a thread in his life. Yeah. Yeah. And he's a great guy. He, uh, I'm not sure if he's still podcasting actively these days, but he had a, a speakeasy podcast uh, years ago. He interviewed me, uh, in the early days of active town. So, and then he and I, uh, brush shoulders all the time at various conferences, uh, uh, especially with the Congress for the new urbanism and all things active mobility and, and active transportation. So it, that was awesome that he got us connected. So your podcast, is a, a relatively new podcast. Why don't you talk about uh, the Bike Ride Podcast? Yeah, so Bike Ride Podcast came out of my love for bikes. I, uh, I'm the executive director and founder of an organization called Wish for Wheels, and we give brand new bikes and helmets to second graders in low-income Title I schools. And when COVID came on and the everyone got quarantined and kind of furloughed, or I call it the Rip Van Winkle plan sometimes, so everyone, you know, I was like, hey, I, I still want to talk to people. I'm really engaged. I love to talk to people. I love to be around people. Wish Reels is all about team building and engagement. And we have thousands of people who come and build bikes with us and give them away. And and that, I, I, I had this loss for it. And I still wanted to talk about bikes. And Bike Ride Podcast was this idea that just kind of popped in. I said, well, how can I continue to talk about bikes and hear about how a bike is a thread in someone's life? How has it impacted your life in a positive way? Where has it led you? Did you meet your partner or your spouse or did you get a job or did you have a great idea or did you, you know, how does it help you? And so there's tons of stories out there around that. And I love to hear people's stories about biking. Like, did they invent a product while they were riding a bike? Was it a bike product? You know, what does it look like? And what, what was that thread in their life from when they first got their first bike to now? Yeah. Yeah, and I love the the structure of your your podcast. I won't give away too much of the uh, the information, but mm -hmm. I love the fact that you have the ten speed questions up front, mm -hmm. and it's nice and consistent. Uh, you know, from guest to guest to guest, and it's neat to to hear that. So, highly recommend everybody uh, check out this podcast, a brand new podcast this year, the Bike Ride Podcast. So, I'm going to do a little bit of turnabout right here. Why mm -hmm. you mentioned your love for the bike? So, let's mm. talk about that origin story. Yeah. Um, do you want to do some 10 speed questions? <laughs> oh, we don't have That's to. You, I, I'm sure you'll, you'll naturally uh, blend some of that in. Oh, yeah. for sure. I, yeah. uh, I, I really enjoy the 10 speed questions and, uh, my kids and I kind of helped create them and like my kids came out with, you know, they're, they're, some of them are super random and, and, and it's like an ever growing list of whatever those questions are. And we, I randomly picked 10 of those questions. So I really don't know what's showing up, but, um, you know, the, I, I always ask one, my first question is always the exact same question, which was, what was your first bike? And while it wasn't my first bike, the really the deepest memory of this bike for me, I mean, I've been riding a bike since I could, I could walk. Um, you know, I grew up in Westchester, New York, and that was what we did. And that's how we got around. And I, I was fortunate enough that my parents had a house on Fire Island, which is just off of Long Island in, in New York, and there's no cars on the island. 
So you basically have to learn how to ride a bike immediately because that's how you get around. You can walk, but it's way more efficient and bikes are everywhere and there's radio flyer red wagons everywhere. And, and so I learned how to ride a bike like instantly because that was how we got around. That's how you rode to the beach. That's how you rode to the, to the store. That's how you went to find your friends. And, you know, I have this deep memory of my dad and I taking apart this purple Schwinn and it was, and I just found this picture of it the other day while I was looking like going through some stuff for bike ride podcast. And we took the, my dad was an electrical engineer and we took the whole bike down to like bearings and redid all the bearings and redid all this stuff. And it was like, and then we repainted it like shiny purple and there was some glitter in there and it had like this banana seed and we were like, and then all of our friends were jumping, you know, we built jumps and things like that. And that's how biking was integrated in my life. I mean, my parents would tell me my mom's line was on weekends. She would tell me there's nothing for you at home today. Go find your friends go out there <laughs> yeah go find your friends come home when the street lights come on right nobody wore a helmet you know this was i'm 50 so this was you know back in the day i'll put that in quotes but you know that's how we were i mean we were the original free range kids and that was how we got around and biking was always a threat i rode to school all the time i you know i remember i would ride over to we had a group of friends who would ride to school and every day we would switch it up on whose house we met at for breakfast and we'd meet at someone's house, have breakfast, and then we'd all go ride to school together. And then we'd, after school, we would just go play around and build jumps and ride through the woods or through the drainage canals or whatever, whatever we could find. And that was our adventure all the time. So that's, that's how biking was always a thread for me. And I never really turned into like a cyclist until I was much, much older. For me, I was always a biker. So I have this belief that there's really three could that there's potentially three I and mean, there's more, but I, I've broken it down into three categories of people who ride bikes, cyclist who you have a kit, you have a Jersey, you have matching stuff. You're kind of like serious about it. You get on your road bike, you go ride 50 miles, you get on your mountain bike, you're, you know, you're kind of into it, right? You're a cyclist. Bikers, we're riding around with our friends, our families. We're just riding, right? We're just kind of biking. And then you have commuters, people who are hardcore commuters. I ride to work. I ride to the store. I ride to my, at my appointments. So like I've kind of broken it down into these three categories. And I was always a biker, like just rode around. And then it wasn't until much later when I, I got my first mountain bike in the early 90s that I kind of became a cyclist. And I was really into it. And even today I joke, I'm really a mountain biker that pretends very poorly to be a road biker. But I've been riding more road lately in, in the Denver area because it's right outside my house and I don't have to drive to trailheads and things. But yeah, so that's how biking, that was my first bike was essentially was the Purple Schwinn. I'm always curious about sort of life cycles and, and how we go through these different phases in life. And, and I can think back to all the different types of bikes that I had and the different types of riding that I did. And you and I, when, when we turn things around. I'll, I'll share with you all my different bikes, but I don't want this about be about me. I want this to be about you and your passion uh, for getting more people on bikes more often. But talk a little bit to that because you mentioned it just a little bit of the, the different life cycles and, and in the mid nineties, getting more into mountain biking. What were some of the life events that triggered some of those changes? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I do want to hear about your bikes because I love to hear like people have, you know, a lot, some people have a lot of bikes, you know, 
the saying is, of course, the right number of bikes is N plus one. And I never realized how universal that was. Like I interviewed this guy in Australia and Darren was telling me that he went to um, a bike fundraiser for his uh, local organization that is an advocacy and transportation planning organization in South Wales in Australia. And he's like, oh, I got these cufflinks. And they say N plus one on them. <laughs> so that's amazing. And it's so universal everywhere. The right... right. I like to say that the right number of bikes is you should have more bikes than shoes. So many, you know, the thread of biking is and how it got me into kind of more cycling more than biking. I had a bike my whole life, you know, growing up, riding around as a kid, riding around as a teenager, all through college, I had bikes to get around and, and I, I wanted something a little, and, and I love the mountains, which is why I moved to Colorado. And I love being in the mountains and being in the woods and getting lost. And for me, hiking has always been great, but I wanted to blend that love of biking and being, getting lost. And you can go so much further on a bike, so much more challenging, so much more fun. And as soon as I heard about mountain biking in the nineties, I said, oh, I got to get a bike. I got to get a bike. And I was waiting tables down in downtown Denver at a Mexican restaurant. And I was saving everything I could to buy this used aluminum frame. And it was, you know, this Gary Fisher Super Caliber was my first mountain bike. I still have it. I've now converted it into a great town bike. And it's it was a great starter bike for me. It was like, and I coveted that thing. It was awesome. I rode it all over town. It was my, again, it became my transportation I had one bike at the time in the early 90s, and it was incredible. And I think that there's so much, biking gives so much to us in so many ways. Uh, um, I had heard that the bike is the only non-person to win the Pulitzer Prize, and that they gave the bike a Pulitzer Prize because it's such a perfect thing. It's It, it gives back all the time. It's... Um, it, it helps us think. It helps us relieve stress. I've never seen anyone ride a bike frowning. I've never seen anyone riding around going, oh, I'm so angry to ride this bike. No, they're all, you know, everyone's happy. They're thinking about it. There's talking. There's, you can socially distance now. Um, as of today on July 30th, biking is the new toilet paper. You can't get bikes right now in this country. It's hard to find them. Bike shops are sold out. Equipment sold out. Accessories are sold out. Everyone's starting to ride less cars on the route on the road right now, more bikes. So I think it's just such a great tool for us and such a great experience to have to be out riding your bike and spending time with people. And you can you go out on, on a, on your, on a solo ride and use it as a meditative ride or a thinking ride or a way to relieve your stress or bring in peace. It it, it really works well. Wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about the origin story of your nonprofit, Wish for Wheels. Yeah, Wish for Wheels. I am so grateful and humbled by Wish for Wheels all the time. It's such a great experience to to share it with people and to see the reaction for from the people who give the bike, build and give the bikes, and who and the people who receive the bikes too, from the communities to the kids, especially the kids. They they go crazy, but um, I grew up in, in Westchester and I rode my bike all the time, which we talked about. And for me, I wanted to give back. I was, I am very grateful for, for my life and where I am. I, and 
I've had a lot of struggles. I can continue to have struggles. It's just part of life. And I enjoy it after the struggle, I guess. But I was at a time in 2005 where I was really grateful and really wanted to give back and really wanted to share my passion about bikes. I, my joke is I love bikes. I like kids and I love bikes. So I just had, I was on my second kid at the time and I realized I was really a terrible helicopter parent. I'm like circling around and making sure what's happening with my kids at all times. And I'm like, Oh, I'm a helicopter parent. And I remembered that when I was growing up, we just go outside and ride our bikes. That's it. And, uh, you know, go, go be free range and enjoy it. And I said, well, you know, we're not, I'm definitely not doing that with my kids and they were much younger then, but even now it's like, you don't, re you don't really want to do that, but there's so much opportunity. And, um, so I wish for wheels was born out of that. And I said, well, I want to give away bikes to kids. I think kids in low income communities, they definitely aren't getting bikes. A bike is an expensive thing for a low income family and the kids outgrow it really fast. It's, it became very apparent that a video game or a TV system of some sort is what all the kids got around. So whoever's parent or grandparent was home at the time, that's where all the kids were in those communities because other parents were out working and, and, and had, you know, multiple jobs. So all these kids are sitting in front of a screen all day in one house. And I said, well, look, we got to change that. Let's get these kids on bikes. So that's how Wish for Wheels got born. I mean, it was all about giving brand new bikes and helmets to two kids in one school. And we developed it in such a way that instead of really doing donors and grants, we are based on corporate philanthropy, team building and social responsibility. So companies in their community fund our bikes. They pay us for the bike. We put on a team building, happy hour, client event, employee engagement. You can build with the kids, whatever that looks like. We'll customize it. They come out, assemble all the bikes with us. It's this great 20-inch single-speed bike, very easy to assemble. And we load our truck or we load the truck that, we're, that we've rented. We drive to a school. Every second grader in that entire school gets a brand new bike and helmet from that company. And we've worked with anyone. I, I say we work with anyone from Google all the way down. So Google, Twitter, Audi, local companies like Prologis, Holland and Hart, Gates Corporation, great companies in the Denver area, all across the U.S. We've been to 15 different states, other nonprofits, other organizations. Uh, in California, we work with a group called CalCPA. They're a, a CPA membership firm, you know, organization. And they, you know, they bring in all their members and they support local community stuff. So we do a lot of great stuff across the board. And then the company or organization comes with us and they meet every second grader in that school. And this double touch point happens where they're engaging. And there's a lot of organizations that are really great to support and be involved in, but it's very hard and rare to meet the recipient that you're giving back to. Yeah, that's such a beautiful program. So you mentioned that these are typically uh, Title I schools. These are typically uh, individuals that uh, and families that are really not able to afford to go out and buy a brand new bike and, and all of that. So these are, are typically what we would refer to as a historically underinvested neighborhoods and, mm -hmm. and really, really difficult places. And, you know, it, it occurs to me because we, we run up against this all the time in the work that we do around the, the country is that these are also places where, 
finding a safe place to ride is a huge issue. Uh, do you do you end up finding inroads to 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 that sort of work as well? Yeah, I think so. We, you know, we're really trying to work on programming and and work well with other organizations in that in that way. We we work with the school district and we we look at things like map testing, attendance, playground usage, behavior. And the thing that we're seeing a lot of is attendance jumps immediately as soon as we give all these kids bikes. And what's great about this our program at second grade is the kids are old enough that they can ride in a group and that parents are starting to let them go and and they're not first graders, they're not kindergartners. And our bike will last three years. It'll last second grade, third grade, and fourth grade. And so they have a three-year last that they get this bike. And the more kids on the street, the safer the street, the more eyeballs, the more exposure, the more people, and the more all of that. So in city centers, like a downtown Denver, or downtown Houston, a downtown LA, yeah, those are very difficult places. But most of our work is also centered around outside in more suburban areas and more urban areas where a school is kind of tucked back in a neighborhood and those kids can ride. And that's how they get there. So a lot of that happens. Um, so you're not really riding down a major thoroughfare, if you will. But more kids are out and about. And the other thing that we see is more kids are starting to use parks in their neighborhood that they weren't using before because they can get there. You know, they might be five, 10 blocks away, but, and they're not going to walk there, but they get on their bike and now they're using a local park and parks and rec departments are letting us know that they're revamping these parks. They're putting in new jungle gyms. They're putting in new mulch and grass areas and they're refurbishing stuff because now people in that community are starting to use it. And more kids, once the other shift that we've seen is that if we give a second grader a bike and they have an older sibling in that school, let's say they have a fifth grader or, you know, sixth grader in that school, their parents are getting out and finding those other kids' bikes. And now older kids are getting bikes. And the more time that we've been doing this, we've been doing this for 15 years. So we've seen where bikes are now inherently just part of that community, right? They know they're getting a Wish for Wheels bike, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. By fifth grade, they're getting bigger bikes. So... Earlier in my career, um, I was living in uh, Kona, Hawaii, on the Big Island, and involved with a, a local advocacy group, PATH, the People's Advocacy for Trails Hawaii. And we actually had a program where we taught fourth graders safety skills, bike handling skills. And inevitably, there was always one or two or three kids that didn't yet know how to ride a bike. And that was in fourth grade. What are you seeing at the second grade level? Yeah, we have uh, we have something called our what we call our hang tag, and that hang tag is in English and Spanish, and it really talks about how to fit the helmet, how to teach your kid how to ride a bike that doesn't know how to ride. I call it the kick kick glide method of taking the pedals off, turning your bike into a balance bike, kick kick glide, kick kick glide, and then you know teaching those kids and and we talk about that in our hang tag where we say oh find a grassy hill, find a little grassy knoll where you can have your kid go down the hill into your arms. And we have those conversations a lot. The other really interesting thing about kids who can't ride a bike is that all the kids who can ride a bike rally around those kids immediately. They flock to those kids and they're like, oh, John, you can't ride a bike. We're going to get you on a bike immediately. And three or four kids are showing up and they're teaching that kid, you know, teaching little John, little Sarah to ride a bike immediately. And sometimes within five, 10 minutes, those kids are riding bikes already, right? That's just how it's going. And, and, and it's happening right then and there. 
you know, we, we want to spend as much time as our partner can spend working with these kids. So when we do go to a give and we are, and we're giving away bikes, our partners are there teaching kids how to ride bikes. Cause if we're, if we're doing a hundred kids, we could have 50 employees of a company there teaching these kids how to ride a bike, talking to the kids, working with them, whatever it is. And so I would say it's probably, it is a, it is a bigger number at a younger age, but it's also a bigger number than you would think in lower income communities because bikes are just not there. Right. Yeah. Not available. So why would they know how to ride a bike? Even the kids who can. So the numbers are, are, are much higher than you would think. I mean, sometimes 30, 40% of the kids can't ride a bike, but they're second graders, man. They learn fast. They're resilient. They're on it. Yeah. Well, and I love to hear that you're using the concept of uh, creating a balanced bike because that's uh, what I feel has been one of the big, huge shifts that has happened in teaching kids how to ride because it really reinforces being able to get into a glide and being able to balance on mm -hmm. that bike. It completely eliminates the need in most cases for uh, training wheels. And in fact, I had uh, Matthias with womb bikes on one of my early podcasts and we talked about that whole concept of how it really has changed how we teach kids how to ride. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Training wheels are tough. They become very dependent on them. And I think they don't really teach kids how to ride a bike. They teach kids how to pedal, but they don't really teach you how to ride a bike. And they also get, I, I've seen a lot of kids get very frustrated with, with training wheels because you can't go as fast and your friends are gone. And, and we used to do bikes with training wheels. When Wish for Wheels first started, we did second, we did kindergartners. It was, uh, it was way before we did, you know, our, our partner program with build and give. And we were really just looking for money at the time. And we were like, Oh, we got to raise some money. We got to do kindergartners. They're cute. They're like super friendly, you know, bikes have training wheels. They're so, you know, really cute and easy to sell if you will. So it was a good way of like raising money from donors. But since when we migrated out of that model and we wanted to get to an older group that had a longer last of a bike and more of an impact um, and the training wheels is a hindrance in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, and I think that a lot has changed. I mean, one of the reasons why a lot of kids aren't exposed, uh, even kids that are coming from a place of privilege aren't exposed to bikes is because there are, are so many other types of devices that they're they're using and they're learning and depending on the the recent fad, like, you know, when the Razor uh, scooters came out, right. you know, everyone was, that's what the kids wanted to be on was right. the Razor scooters. But the beautiful thing about that is it really reinforced balance and gliding. And so making that transition over to like a, a womb balance bike yep. and, and being able to do that. And then, oh yeah, piece of cake. I've got this down or, and, you know, be able to, to graduate to a, a bike that has pedals and off they go. Yeah. And they're the, now they're free range kids. Now just they're like free range kids. About. Yes. I, yeah. I love that term because it's so weird to me, <laughs> right? Like a free range kid, like all kids should be free range. Just go, go enjoy, go have fun. Well, you're a parent. So yeah, I mean, you, you, you mentioned it earlier, you're a parent, you, you had, you were battling with that concept of, you know, being a helicopter parent and, and all of that. And uh, I'm a few years older than you. I'm 55 now. And, you know, same thing. It's, it was just different back then. And, you know, you get on your bike and you'd hook up with your posse and off you'd go. Yeah. 
And I guess my question is, and I don't really know the answer to this, and this is probably could open a huge can of worms, but is it really different back then? Was it really different? Is the, you know, is the safety, is the world really much less safe than now than it was then? Is it just economy of scale, like there's more people, so there might be more crime or more situations that we hear about? And so I don't really know. I haven't done enough research around that or I have no knowledge of that. But I just wonder if it's really that much different, you know, in that way. And maybe it's our perception. When we return from this brief intermission, Brad shares some information about the Wish for Wheels Cycling Club, discusses the changes to the program during the COVID-19 era, and addresses how we can get more people engaged in the advocacy efforts to make it safer for more people of all ages to ride more often. But first, allow me this brief moment to mention, if you are enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review it on the listening platform of your choice so you won't miss a single episode and the feedback really does help us. Okay, that's all for this short break in the action. Let's get this ride with Brad Appel with Wish for Wheels rolling once again. Do you guys also have a cycling club that's associated with the nonprofit? And I was scrolling through your website and taking a look at uh, some of the cool kits that you have out there. So tell us a little bit about that cycling club. Yeah, so we, you know, we've, it's migrated more into a cycling community. And so we have a cycling community. People can wear our kits and support our organization in that way. You know, with COVID, we really haven't been running active rides and group rides as much. And we've had some shifts going on, but it's definitely a cycling community. People can wear our kits. We have a lot of sweet gear out there that people can, can, showcase and you know support us with it and uh, every kit that we sell when you buy a full kit you you actually fund a full bike for a kit oh that's awesome so you mentioned covid so <laughs> we got to talk about it it's the elephant in the room right now where you guys are certainly better off there in colorado than we are here in in texas right now it's pretty bad here in, in texas although the city of austin is actually trending in a positive direction which keep wearing uh, your face coverings folks it's it's making a difference and uh, keep keep that physical distance but talk about covid so what's happening with the program in this new era so we did Rip Van Winkle is what I was calling it. You know, not everybody loves that term sometimes when I use it. But, you know, we just kind of, we took a break. We were really fortunate enough that we were able to kind of ride out the storm a little bit. Um, we've had, we've kind of frozen the program a little bit. And now we're ready to kind of start start back up again. It'll look very different. And we've definitely had a, a little bit of a shift. We were we were a team of six at one time. We we did lay everybody off, including myself, so that we could preserve the mission and the model. We have fifteen hundred bikes sitting in our warehouse that that are all paid for. We're ready for, to find companies now to fund and build and give those bikes. And our build give program is going to look different moving forward until we can really get to those kids and meet them one on one we're rolling out a program, our build give program is going to look like come to our warehouse in groups of 15 or less in Colorado, in Denver, you got to be 10 or less, but come to our warehouse. We'll, we're going to follow all the rules with our numbers. We'll build bikes at the warehouse. 
then we'll distribute the bikes when we can to, to local schools. School districts are really excited about doing it and getting involved. And we've now implemented a drive-through bike pickup. So parents are coming in. There's two lanes of, of cars. Everyone's masked up. All the bikes are clean. We're wiping them down before. Kid, you know, the kids are in the car. We're all waving and talking. We're loading a, bike, a brand new bike and a brand new helmet with our hang tag and some more information in that car and, and off the kids go. So, you know, we're able to do that. And then when kids go back to school, we'll drop the bikes off at the school. And if we can be there and, you know, and, and say hi and things like that, that'll be great. We'll see what the districts are open to. And we're just doing whatever we can, but now more than ever, we got to get kids on bikes. There's a whole, you know, there's, there's a reduction in busing, you know, there's a Fort Collins up here in northern Colorado just announced a 90% reduction in buses. So, you know, how are these kids going to get to school when school does open? And if school isn't open and everyone's virtually learning, we got to get these kids outside. We can't just leave them in front of the screen. We can't just leave them in front of a TV. We can't just leave them and, you know, they have to be able to interact. And biking so, is socially distant already. You can ride and, and be safe while you're in your neighborhood and you're apart from people. So we want to get these kids on bikes and, you know, as soon as we can. And now more than ever, they need this creative outlet, this physical outlet, this fun and excitement. Yeah, so one of the things that we're seeing nationwide and really globally is that the pandemic has caused such a decrease in the number of cars out on the streets and people have really flocked to reimagining and reclaiming the streetscape. Uh, lots of people, in order to maintain physical distancing, the sidewalks are obviously too narrow. And so we're seeing more and more people having a different relationship with the streets. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that I, I would love to see more more bikes, right? I mean, we, we've seen that. We're seeing an increase. Let's keep that increase going. Let's keep these, let's keep us all riding together as a group. And that's where I want, I'd love to see it go. You don't need to drive your car across the street to go to the grocery store. You can ride your bike. You don't need, you can go three, four, five blocks away. I'm a huge uh, e-bike fan. I like, I think that we cyclists, again, I'm putting that in quotes, but cyclists are like, oh, that's not real biking. Yeah, it is real biking. I mean, you know, there's studies out there that talk about how if you ride an e-bike, you go further for longer and you're out doing, you know, you're outside more. So, and there, and there's a huge connection there. You know, an e-bike is not a moped. It does not have a throttle. It's a pedal assist bike that can help you get around town. You can ride two, three, four miles to your appointments and back without sweating and without needing a change of clothes because you're out riding on a pedal assist bike. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity there for that to come. And I think that the mobility of that, the ease of it is going to be even better. We need more infrastructure. I'm not an advocacy person, so it's not in my wheelhouse, but I do have a belief that we need more instruction around that. So this actually brings up a good point because you mentioned that, you know, advocacy isn't necessarily in your wheelhouse. And one of the initiatives that I was involved with a little more than a decade ago was a program to try to connect recreational and sport cyclists and triathletes with local advocacy efforts. Mm. Because oftentimes there's a huge disconnect between these various tribes that you you 
you indicated earlier. Right. And and that's a huge issue because we have a situation where the environment that we create, our built environment, should be safe and inviting for all ages and abilities. And that's exactly what we see out in many of those Northern European uh, countries, mm-hmm. like in Denmark, like in the Netherlands, like in Sweden, is that you see huge numbers of people riding because mm-hmm. it's truly safe and inviting to do so. Right. From your perspective and the work that you've been doing over the past 16 years, talk a little bit about that. How do we bridge that gap and get more of the recreational and sporting cyclists engaged with the advocacy efforts of creating safer places for people to ride? Yeah. You know, there's great organizations out there who are doing it. You're wearing a people for bike shirt, right? League of American cyclists, bicyclists are out there. There's local group, Bicycle Colorado, Bike Austin. You know, there's, there's definitely, you know, Portland bike, you know, bike Portland. There's, there's all these amazing groups out there who, whose job and mission it is to do those type of things. Wish for Wheels is not really that that in that range, but I do love the blending of that and the coming together that that makes that. And I think it's just more of a communication and a and you know a frank conversation. How do we teach that? How do we how do we engage that? I go back to just the telling of of the education, right? So like in Colorado most cyclists that I know don't really even know the cycling rules of the road, let alone the driving rules of the road, right? One idea I have is that we should provide a manual with every bike you buy, right? Like you should have some sort of something that you either read or you have a checklist. I mean, there's a discussion about a a biking license that you have to pay for once that you just have to read through this thing and then check off. And, you know, I don't know if that's even effective, but something that people read and engage you know, even just trail etiquette, you know, when you're out mountain biking, a lot of people don't know the the rules of mountain biking. I mean, there are so many times when I'm climbing and a downhiller will literally ride right into me. And I look at them and I'm like, I'm climbing, you're, you need to pull over. Oh, don't worry about it, man. It's not that big of a deal. Okay. Well, okay. But it is, you know, that's, those are the rules. Yeah. I'm sure you see that all over with active towns. Oh yeah, absolutely. And in our perspective, we're all just people riding on one of the most amazing inventions that humans have ever come up with. And it, we're completely agnostic to what's better. There, there's no such thing as better. We just, right. we, we, we just dig it that you're out there, you're riding. No one way is better than the other. And one of the things that we try to really re-emphasize is rehumanizing our experiences out there in the public realm, whether that's on our trails, whether that's on our streets, it's rehumanizing that that interaction. And uh, there's a great program out of Boulder that really strives to do that for for people who are out there riding bikes, who are out there running, uh, trying to rehumanize that experience out on the roads. And it's called the It Could Be Me Initiative. It's really trying to rehumanize that experience and Mm -hmm. reconnect people that, hey, we have to share our public realm. And again, whether that's a street or whether that's a trail, we have to share this space. And so we all just need to figure out a way that we're going to get along and be courteous and, and, you know, look out for each other. Right. 
Yeah, we've all been there. We've all, how do we make ourselves safer, right? What can we do to do that? And what can we do to educate that? And that's what matters. And, and thank you for telling me about that. Bicycle Colorado has a conference every year about advocacy and, you know, infrastructure and things. And they brought in this transportation planner from Copenhagen, besides being hilarious, he told the story about how we in the United States want to be bikers and we're bikers and, you know, how we, you know, we get this new bike and we want to tell everyone we're riding to work and we're commuters and we're this and, you know, we show off our bikes and we have a bike room and da da da, da and all this stuff. And he's like, you know, in Europe, we make the roads really narrow because we want you to pay attention. We make gas really expensive because we want you to drive less. We make insurance really expensive and parking is really hard and because we want you to ride a bike and your bike lane is really wide and your pedestrian lane is really wide and your car lane is really narrow. And he's like, in the United States, your car lane is like the size of a country and you could weave in and out of your own lane while you're reading a book or putting on makeup and no one even knows because you're like in this giant lane and your bike lane is really narrow and your pedestrian lane is really narrow. And everyone comes over and sees their bike. He's like, in Europe, a bike is like a vacuum cleaner. He's like, it's just what we use. It's, he's like, I don't invite you over and tell you I'm a vacuumer and I come see my vacuum room. Here's my room full of vacuums. He's like, we don't even like have nice bikes. We just have a bike and we're just riding bikes and just having, you know, that's our transportation. It's easier, cheaper and faster and more convenient. Sounds like Michael Koval Anderson, actually. Um, maybe <laughs> that's his be. famous line. Yeah. Is it's, uh, you know, it's, a bike is like a vacuum and, and yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. And that's true of the Dutch as well. And, and, uh, in most cities in Sweden, uh, increasingly we're, we're seeing more and more of that is it's, it's no different than a pair of walking shoes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a much more efficient way of meeting your daily needs is being able to you know, go about your business. Right. And the, the, and there was a study out there that talked about how when we do wear helmets and we are on the street, cars actually get closer to us than they do if we're not wearing a helmet, because the perception is that we're, we can be safer and that cars are then getting, drivers are like, oh, that per inherently subconsciously, they're like, oh, John's wearing a helmet. I can get closer to John. It's okay. He's fine. And it's, you know, it just becomes more dangerous in that way. So, Again, we're just talking about safety, communication, and education around all of that, you know, for all of us, from, from pedestrians to drivers to, to cyclists, all, you know, how, how, do we, how do we all just get along? Yeah. And I'm not anti-helmet. I wear a helmet when I'm on my racing bike or when I'm on my mountain bike on, on single track uh, yeah. and, and doing those sorts of things. I, I like to tell folks it's context sensitive. If I know I'm going to be riding in a, a certain way or in a certain place, where my level of risk is higher, I will choose to do that. Otherwise, if I'm just running to the grocery store to to get groceries, which is mm -hmm. what I do on a you know every other day basis, is ride right. my bike to the grocery store. I don't wear a helmet yeah. a because I've got a safe infrastructure that I can ride upon to get there, and it reinforces uh, throughout my neighborhood that riding a bike is not inherently dangerous. I'm right. not having to put armor on. And, and that's, that's where my public health background and my psychology background comes in is, is looking at the subtle messages that we send out. If we send out the message that riding a bike is inherently a dangerous activity, we will never get past the 1% mark of people choosing to ride a bike on a mm. daily basis. Why? Because, well, clearly that's only for the, the fearless.
right, <laughs> that right. are going to do that. And that's right. one of the reasons why uh, we've had a challenge of, of getting to modal balance like, you know, the, the cities uh, in, in the Netherlands as well as in Denmark where, you know, they'll, they'll have 30% of their people riding for their, to meet their daily needs by bike. They'll have 30% who are using public transit or walking mm-hmm. and 30, 30% are using some form of motor vehicle. There's a really cool video um, in, of Paris floating around right now where it showed pre-COVID where there's 50 cars and two bikes. And then yeah. right now it's 50 bikes and two cars. Well, and that's that, you know, Paris is a wonderful example. I was there in 2015 to film uh, the very first car free day where Mayor Hildago uh, said, you know, hey, we've got a problem here. We've got uh, smog that's so bad that people can't see the Eiffel Tower. And if people can't see the Eiffel Tower, who's going to want to actually come to Paris? And so it, it you know, she was like, we have to change. And one of the things that they did was establish a, a car-free Sunday. Wow. And it was it was wonderful to film the Champs-Élysées with absolutely no cars, people, you know, scootering around on their on their razors and razor scooters and riding bikes and running and everything. And then I went back the next day on Monday and then filmed it uh, with all, you know, six, seven lanes of cars, you know, whizzing by. Wow. So pretty that crazy. Was- that, that, that must have been so, really cool. And the thing that gets you about that is that's cobblestones, right? Mm-hmm. And so the noise level too, you really, it drives mm-hmm. home just how noisy uh, motor vehicles can be. Right. So Brad, I, we're, we're running short on time here. So what I want to do is, is two things. Uh, one, I want to see if there's any final points that you want to make sure that we cover here today. No, I think we've covered a lot of things. Thank you very much for, for weaving this whole through. This was, this was great. Fantastic. And the second thing I have for you, and this is the the, the only consistent question that I have uh, for all my guests, and it is what advice do you have for any of our listeners that are out there that might be inspired from our discussions today? They want to make a difference in their community. Yeah, um, do it. Just get started, right? Getting started is better than getting started perfectly, right? Don't overthink it, just do it. Do it. Think about how, what, what do you love and what could you give back with that? Right. I really believe that we are here to serve each other, not ourselves. When we do serve others, it serves ourselves. And that if everyone just gave back to somebody else once a day in some form, and that was a pay it forward type thing, uh, we would see this shift, you know, this, this mindset, this energy shift in this world. And, you know, so many times we think we want to, we got to fill this hole in ourselves and we get, we need something. We got to buy this. We got to have this. We got to do that, whatever it is. And it's so temporary. Giving back is, is not temporary. It, it, it leads to further things. It's more permanent for that other person that you're giving back to. So think about how you want to give back. What is it? Um, it could be anything from giving a bike to somebody, to opening the door for somebody, to, uh, you know, looking on an app and saying, oh, this person, you know, local app and just finding somebody in your neighborhood who's like, oh, I really just need my faucet fixed. Oh, if you can fix a faucet, go call them up and say, I I can fix your faucet. No problem. Right. I can I can rake those leaves. I can help you with your trash. I can do whatever. And if you want to do it more formally, think about a nonprofit. They're really easy to start. They don't require a lot of time and effort when the beginning, you know, depending on what you're, what you're doing. And, um, there's lots of resources out there to do it and, uh, just give back, 
Love it. Love it. Brad, hey, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, chatting with you here today. Thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Yeah, John, thanks for having me. I really had a great time today. Thank you all so very much for listening. I hope you found this conversation with Brad with Wish for Wheels inspiring, educational, and entertaining. For more information about the initiative, please visit their website at wishforwheels.org. For your convenience, I've included this plus many other helpful links in the show notes. And just a quick reminder before we part ways, I invite you to drop me a line if you have any feedback and or suggestions for topics or guests. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. It's always so wonderful to hear from y'all. By the way, if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please help us grow our audience and this movement by telling a friend or two. Thanks once again to Brad Appel for joining me on the Active Towns podcast and Andy Baino for facilitating the connection. And as a little teaser, I'll be interviewing Andy for an upcoming episode with an exciting new twist. More on this later. Okay, that's it for episode number 41. Please take care of yourselves and one another. And until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.